Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Lee Stranahan, thank you. It was a privilege for me to meet you last weekend. You're tuned into Radio Stranahan. And now, here's your presenter, Lee Stranahan. Good afternoon, everybody. Lee Stranahan, Radio Stranahan. It's Friday, December 9th. How's it going? You look lovely today, as always. Big show today. Got a couple callers coming in. We had a uh, we had some technical problems yesterday. We also had some technical problems today, but you haven't noticed them yet, and that's why they're better technical problems. Couple guests today: Hilbert Nelson, who's one of the leaders of We the People Magic Valley in Twin Falls, Idaho. I had the pleasure of meeting Hilbert when I spent a few months in Twin Falls working on. A story of the impact of refugee resettlement and how it's affected the small city of Twin Falls, Idaho. That was a great, uh, a great story, a great series of stories, and there's more coming on that on Breitbart News, and we'll be talking to Hilber next hour. Also, coming up later this hour, we'll be talking to Brandon Darby about an absolutely shocking story. On the, hang on one second. Uh, Brandon has a completely shocking story he's been covering in his work covering the border situation and the drug cartels in Mexico. Brandon has done yeoman's work. And he'll be talking about some completely stunning new material he's got coming. You're going to hear it here first. And that's Brandon Darby coming up in about a half hour. We'll also be taking your calls. You can call in and talk to me at 619-924-0786. So let's talk about the news. Let's talk about what's going on in the news today. A few, few things going on. The recount mess continues. This is like a slow-motion Bush v. Gore Remember Bush v. Gore in Florida, the Hanging, the Hanging Chads? By the way, a great new wave band, the Hanging Chads. The recount mess is continuing to go on. And what's interesting about it is that Jill Stein, I was listening to an update on this. So what's happening is a judge in Wisconsin has now said that the recounts can continue there. A federal judge in Michigan shut the recounts down, but they're appealing that. But I don't want you hanging, uh, hanging like a Chad, really. I don't want you hanging on all this drama because it's not going to make any difference. Does that make sense? I'm going to say it again because it might shock you. It's not going to make any difference because what they're saying in Wisconsin is about 80% through these recounts that have been allowed to continue. But so far, the recounts have shown no significant shifts, which means Trump will still win Wisconsin. And since Pennsylvania is up in the air, no matter what happens in Michigan, Trump still won. You with me? In other words, he won even without Michigan. He, he had the electoral votes he needed, even without Michigan. So this is a typical 
progressive chase your tail witch hunt. Is that a thing you can do? Can you hunt a witch on your tail? I may be mixing metaphors, but there's no point to this whole thing. And what's interesting is, once again, the hopes of children, and when I say children, I mean progressives, the hopes of children are once again being pinned on this imaginary idea that somehow, there, this is how deep the shock and denial is among the Democrats. They are still completely in denial that Donald Trump won. And they keep thinking that something is going to happen. There's going to be some recount, some vote, some magical wizard from another dimension, something that will be able to stop Trump. Now, that's not going to keep them from stamping their feet. And by stamping their feet, of course, I mean street protests. That's what I mean. And speaking of street protests, I don't know if you caught my article yesterday on Breitbart News. I have a lot more coming on this. It's about the Kellogg's company and the related Kellogg's Foundation. And I've been writing stories for a couple of weeks. Of course, Breitbart, who I write for, is in the middle of a dump Kellogg's campaign, urging people to stop buying Pop-Tarts and Frosted Flakes and the other health foods that the Kellogg's company is so known for. That's because Kellogg's made the announcement. I was on the radio on Sirius Satellite XM, 125 this morning talking about that with Raheem Kassam, who was hosting. And the Kellogg's company made the unusual announcement that they were going to stop advertising on Breitbart. Usually companies, you know, people advertise, advertisers come and go, right? But usually people don't announce it. They made a big deal of announcing it. They wanted everybody to know what they were doing. It's virtue signaling. That's the word for it. That really is the word for it. They were virtue signaling. They wanted everybody to know that their values, and that's the term they use, that their values were not the same as Breitbart's. And I got to tell you, from the reporting I've done, they're absolutely right. Their values are not at all the same as that of Breitbart or the audience. Now, of course, if you're a Breitbart reader, You know the values of Breitbart. They're pro-American. Patriotism would be sort of the central thing. And this comes directly from Andrew Breitbart. They're pro-American. So so let's just start right there. The groups that the Kellogg's Foundation is funding, LaRasa, for instance, that's one of the groups that they're funding. Now, you've heard of LaRasa. LaRasa, in Spanish... If you, I don't know if you know Spanish, but it means the Democrats. No, that's, that's not exactly accurate. I may be off there. I'm not a Spanish major. So La Raza means the race. And it specifically refers, it's Hispanic Latino supremacy. By the way, I think that's the way you're supposed to say it. I'm not sure. I've not gotten the latest Chicago manuals, manual of style. I think you're supposed to say Hispanic Latino whatever you refer to Hispanic slash Latinos. So that's the way I'm just going to use that form. But La Raza is a explicitly openly Hispanic Latino supremacist group who's in favor of open borders. So no, that doesn't exactly jibe with the values 
of Breitbart or the 45 million readers that we have or actually most of the country. And what I reported on yesterday is this group Kazahusta slash Just Cause. By the way, are you, are you picking up a, a, a trend here? In the same way you have to say Hispanic slash colon Latino, whatever piece of punctuation you want to put between the two terms. Also, this group Kazahusta Just Cause, that's the full name. You can't just say Kazahusta. You can't just say Just Cause. You have to get both in. It needs a little. It needs Spanglish, basically. It needs it needs the Spanish and the English in the same thing, and that's because this group Kazahusta, who I've dealt with before, when I was in the Bay Area early this year, I was covering the San Francisco City Council meeting, where they were going to expand San Francisco's sanctuary city laws in the wake of the murder of Katie Steinle. Remember, Katie Steinle is the young woman who was killed last year in San Francisco by a previously five-time deported Hispanic Latino man. And he fired a gun off, and it ended up killing Katie Steinle. And, of course, this created national outrage Bill O'Reilly covered it on Fox. It was shocking. And San Francisco basically blew the bird to the entire United States and said, oh, you're going to criticize our sanctuary city policies. Guess what? We're going to expand our sanctuary city policies. And this was led by the entire uh, entire San Francisco City Council, which is leftist as you can possibly be. The San Francisco City Council, because, uh, again, I sat in on a number of meetings. When I was there, I'll just a, a, an example. They openly praised a lawyer who represented a terrorist, <laughs> Wendy Yoshimura. They, they openly gave a proclamation to the attorney who had done that. It was amazing. It was amazing. But, and no one thought anything of it. No one thought anything of it. I was covering this city council meeting in San Francisco. And members of Casa Justa Just Cause. And by the way, you can tell that because they were wearing T-shirts that said Casa Justa Just Cause. Were in the audience. A whole a gaggle of them. There's about three dozen, I would say. And they were in the, in the audience as I was covering this. And they started cheering as John Avalos, San Francisco City Council member, was speaking. Now, by the way, don't know if you know this, you're not supposed to do that. In fact, I know they knew it if they spoke English, which some of them did not. And by the way, that's not racist to point out that people don't speak English, just so you know. I'd, I'd, I'd like to make it clear that not everything is racist. But they, some of them did not speak English. And I I don't remember if they gave the announcement in Spanish as well. I don't remember. But they told you you're not supposed to applaud, cheer, boo, make any demonstration. You're not supposed to stand up. So I was sitting there covering the meeting. John Avalos is speaking. I'm videotaping him with my phone. And suddenly behind me, behind me to the back and to the left, if I was Oliver Stone, I would say back and to the left. Because that's where they were. I was sitting in the front row, 
they were behind me and to my left. So back into the left, back into the left, back into the left. There was Kazahusta people in their shirts. They coordinated. And they started cheering, which you're not supposed to do. But I kept filming John Avalos speaking. A couple minutes later, they started cheering again. So this time, I kind of look back a little bit. I want to see what's going on. Look back a little bit. But I keep filming John Avalos. Now, the third time they start doing this, openly applauding and cheering at the San Francisco City Council meeting. That's when I decided to turn my camera around and film them, which I have a right to do. So my goal here is every day to make you smarter, right? That's what we're trying to do here. And I do it amazingly successfully. If only you listen. That's the whole trick. So I'm going to make you smarter here. California has sunshine laws. So some would argue, I am not a lawyer, thank God. And again, that's not racist. I have no pride. It's not, I have no objection to lawyers. I've, lawyer Americans, I, I have friends who are lawyer Americans. I've dated a lawyer American, although technically a law student American, many years ago. So it's not like I'm, I'm opposed to lawyers as such, generally, broadly. But I'm not a lawyer. But I think there's the First Amendment, and I think that generally gives me the right to film people in a public place. And I think San Francisco City Hall would count as a public place. But here's the part where I'm going to make you smarter. California takes it one step further. California has sunshine laws that give you an extra set of rights. You have the right to film, to record, as long as you're unobtrusive. And God, I'm unobtrusive. Let me point that out. If you're, if you're trying to get the picture of me sitting in the front row of the San Francisco City Council meeting with all these uh, obtrusive people, it's Casa Justa who is obtrusive with all their yelling and applauding and carrying on. I'm just trying to sound like an old guy. So they're carrying on over behind me back and to the left. I was unobtrusive. I was sitting in the front row minding the people's business, and recording this, so basically so I could transcribe it later to file my story, right? So they start shouting behind me. And I turn my camera towards them, and I start filming the people for the third time who've been shouting at this San Francisco City Council meeting. At that point, a woman wearing a Kazahusta t-shirt, and this is all video. I published this on Breitbart. The video is all out there. A woman comes over, sits next to me. She gets up. By the way, again, I told you, you're not supposed to get up. She got up. She came over. She sat down next to me. She starts blocking my camera with her arm while I'm filming them the next time they start shouting again. And so I'm like, what are you doing? I whispered it. I'm like, stop blocking my camera. But she's explicitly blocking my camera. So let me cut to the part where the sheriff comes over. Let me just, let me, I'm just going to zip right to that section where the sheriff came over. So now they've caused this row where she's putting her arm up next to me. This woman who sat down next to me from La Casa Houston. By the way, I got to point out, this is a group that Kellogg's, let's tie this into a Pop-Tart, shall we? 
let's tie this into Tony the Tiger, or as as we might call him if we are Hispanic Latino, Antonio de Tigre. Is that? I think that's correct. I'm not sure. Antonio de Tigre. So, so Kellogg's, or as I'll call them for the purposes of discussion now, L. Kellogg's. So Kellogg's, who's funded Casa Justa, this is what they're funding. They're funding a lady putting her arm up in front of my camera. I don't think that was a specific grant. Let me be clear. For legal purposes, they did not specifically give like – it's not – if you go through their thing, they did not say, we're giving $20,000 to Casa Justa to have a lady put an arm up in front of a dude filming a meeting legally. They don't say that specifically, but they did give – uh, $10,000 to Casa Justa, which is uh, chump change. What's $10,000 here or there for general operating expenses? But then they also gave them $300,000. That is that is less chump change. By the way, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, $300,000, that's chump change, please call me to sponsor the show because you're the kind of person I want to be talking to, and now I have a good idea of what to charge you. So they've given Kellogg's has given $310,000 to Casa Justa, right? And now this lady's blocking me. So anyway, let's cut to the part with the sheriff, because I teased that. That was a cliffhanger. So now the sheriff comes over, and who do they ask to leave? That would be me, right? I'm the guy they asked to leave. I wasn't doing anything. And I said to them, because I'm respectful of law enforcement, even when they're violating my constitutional rights, I try to remain respectful. Uh, and I, so I said to him, what have I done wrong? He said, well, just get up and leave. I said, okay, I will, but what have I done? And then, and this is really the best part. I should, I should have Shane try to, my lovely assistant Shane, I should have Shane try to grab that video from YouTube. I'll play the audio for you. I will get the audio in the course of the show. And we'll play it for you because they're literally shouting at me as I leave. It's phenomenal. I got it all on video. See, here's the trick. If the police are violating your constitutional rights at the behest of a leftist community organizer group, keep your camera rolling. That would be my advice to you. I try to make you smarter. This is one of the don't don't. That's not the time to shut off your camera. That's the time to keep rolling no matter what. Because there's another term for this. I like to call it Exhibit A. I still may sue them. I really may. I talked to somebody about this a couple months ago. They violated my rights. And I talked to somebody a couple months ago in Idaho, and they're like, this is a clear-cut case. And I don't think I'd feel bad about taking San Francisco's money. I, I really don't. I'm trying, Let me think about it. Hang on one second. No, I don't. I don't feel bad. I'm going to try to... I just let me go deep here one second. I'm just going to try to do some self analysis. No, I don't feel bad at all. No, I wouldn't feel bad at all about taking San Francisco's money for that. So anyway, the sheriff, I want to say dragged me out because that's a nice metaphor, but it's literally not true. I walked out. He didn't drag me out. If he dragged me out, that would be even more dramatic footage of me sort of aiming at the ceiling. But no, no, he walked me out. He was polite. He, He was just doing his job. And then I go out and I talk to the law enforcement officers. And then by the time I'm allowed back in, because I was allowed back in about 10 minutes later, 
uh, and the speeches are over, everything's over. And by the way, the La Casa Husa people had split because the only reason they were there was to cheer for John Avalos. That's why they were there. They were the cheering section. So that's what Antonio de Tigre, that's what Kellogg's is. I don't know. How would you? Es bueno. Is that what it is? Is that Antonio de Tigre would say about his bowl of sucre maize? Is that what it is? I think it's sucre maize. That would be sugar corn. If I'm correct, I think Frosted Flakes... And again, I'm not, I'm not a Spanish major, but I believe sugar corn is the name for Frosted Flakes in Spanish, or should be. Although, by the way, sugar corn, have you ever seen the corn stands outside like a Mexican supermarket or Mexican street cards where you can get corn? You can get mayonnaise on your corn. So I think you should be able to get sugar on it. I think that's, uh, again, see, you learn about cuisine here as well. Now, by the way, I just people can be critical, and I, I, I consider myself a foodie, which means I'm fat. By the way, foodie is another way of explaining why you're fat. Fatty, fatty is another word for foodie, basically. But I'm a foodie, sure. I've got the diabetes to show for it. Sure, I'm a foodie, absolutely. So I'm not, I'm not one to criticize foreign cuisines, but I will say this: I have never sat down once in my life to a cob of corn. And said, do you know what this needs? Some mayonnaise. Never happened. Never once in my life as an American have I sat down and said to myself, let's, let's put some mayonnaise in this corn. By the way, Shane, my lovely assistant, has uh, pulled up. Let's play this. Let's see. I'm just going to do this the old-fashioned way. He's going to crank up the volume. This is the sound of Casa Justa. I should try to – there's no R's to roll on that. Otherwise, I would. This is the sound of La Casa Justa, Just Cause. See, I should do the first part with the, with the R roll. So that's what I'll do. Casa Justa, Just Cause. Then I'll sound really white on the Just Cause. Casa Justa, Just Cause. See, it's pretty good. So this is the sound of Casa Justa, Just Cause, as sponsored by Antonio de Tigre. The Kellogg's Foundation. This is the sound of them shouting at me as the sheriffs escort me. That's what I won't say drag. They escort me from the room. Let's let's see. Where's your speakers? That's the sound there. Get out. You can hear that. You can hear the chorus of rotund Hispanic Latino women shouting, get out. They're not all. They weren't all on the heavy side. And again, I've already pointed out that I'm fat, so I'm not judging. I'm just accurately describing. But that was the sound. Get out. Get out. Can you pull that up again? Is that handy? I'll get up again, just in case you missed it. This is this is what this is what this is what Kellogg's is funding, and it's these far left groups. And as I pointed out in my article and other places, look, they don't share our values. For one thing, I don't know the First Amendment. I guess that's one value they don't share. And this just typically shows if if anybody's under the illusion that the left that the left is in favor of free speech, 
this should completely I, I have firsthand proof otherwise. So that was my experience with Kazuhusta. But Kazuhusta has also been involved. Wait, hang on. Let's just hear that again, shall we? One sec. Can you explain why? That's me. Can you explain why? Can you explain why I'm going? Here you go. Get out, get out. By the way, I used to hear that a lot in high school. But... That's the sound of me getting kicked out. And I'm not saying that this is the worst thing Kazuhusta has done, because they've done horrible stuff. For instance, they were involved with Occupy Oakland, which I covered the Occupy Wall Street protests significantly. Occupy Oakland, they were the toughest ones. But before I talk about that further, on the line, we have Brandon Darby talking about the border. Let's set up Brandon with some music here for the border discussion. So we have the line live from Texas, Brandon Darby. How are you doing today, Brandon? Hey, buddy. Thanks for having me on. No, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. We even gave you a musical intro, but I think I have a better one. Hang on one sec. I have to look. I'm doing my own. Oh, where is it? Well, I don't see it here. Hang on. Oh, wait. No, I do. Okay, Brandon, you'll remember this. This is a blast from the past. Are you ready? I'm ready. You know that if Andrew Breitbart left these guys, the loony left is going to hate them. You're listening to Brandon Darby and Lee Stranahan. How's that, huh? Oh, that's awesome. That's perfect, dude. I haven't heard that in so long. Yeah, that was from our old Brandon. uh, Brandon and I used to have a podcast in the morning about, I think, about (laughs) four in the morning, if I'm correct. It felt like that. But, uh... That's uh, that was one of the bumpers that we had. It's completely appropriate. So, how you doing today, Brandon? I'm doing great. I'm doing well. Uh, just doing my best to keep rolling and get everything done. As as you know, uh, well, all the folks at Breitbart are pretty busy right now. Um, we have a lot to ponder and a lot to do, and we have a our platform. You know, just became about two times as large and. That uh, translates to tens of, of millions of more people uh, with their eyes on our site, and it's a, it's a big responsibility. So Brandon Darby, for those of you who are not familiar with him, all two of you, Brandon is, of course, the managing director of Breitbart, Texas, and Brandon has also been responsible for one of the really unique features at Breitbart News, which is the Cartel Chronicles. The Cartel Chronicles is where Brandon has contacts inside Mexico, and he's doing something that I don't think – correct me if I'm wrong in this, Brandon. Is anybody else doing the kind of stuff you're doing with the Cartel Chronicles? Any other no, news outlet? No, um, not at all. It, it's, a, it's a unique project uh, uh, that we're doing. Um, as you know, we've, what we've basically done is we started to realize that uh, several regions in Mexico, specifically along the border, the U.S.-Mexico border – uh, we're in a situation where their journalists work at news outlets and the news outlets all have what's called the link and the link works for the cartel and the link tells them what they can and can't publish, how they will and won't cover something, uh, what they can and can't report, um, what they can and can't investigate. 
And if they don't do it, they get killed, right? Or their families get killed. So we started to realize that there must be a lot of people there who want to speak out and simply don't have the power to, or they'll get their families murdered. And then we began to find these collectives of citizen journalists who were risking their lives to tweet out information on the crime and on the cartels. And they were using Twitter to do it. And, um, other social media, and they were reaching two or 300, 400 people. And one of them got murdered for tweeting bad things about the Gulf cartel. And then we decided at that point we would do something. So we went to them in person and said, hey, uh, you're tweeting this out in Spanish to two or 300 people. Why don't, why don't, we, uh, why don't we have you send it to us instead Right? We'll turn it into a legitimate article, then we'll translate it into English, and then we'll publish it in both England, English and Spanish so that your voice is heard. Well, they were obviously into that, and, and uh, we allow them to write under pseudonyms, and uh, they were into it. Uh, we've made a lot of relationships because of that, and uh, it's become really the only, the only voice uh, coming out of those regions consistently with, uh, you know, with evidentiary standards and the ability to fact check. So at this point, our relationships are so uh, uh, we have so many relationships in in, in the right positions in Mexico's uh, certain regions of Mexico that we we can even fact check. I mean, we you know we can check things with a multi- multitude of sources. We can obtain exclusive photos, exclusive videos, things that other people have not seen and make sure that they are seen. And, you know, so we're able to really to bring a voice to those people and to help those citizen journalists there to fight back. Well, and let me, let me go off on a slight rant here that I think you'll agree with. But, uh, feel free to stop me if I say anything. You don't. This is one of those things that really pisses me off about the attacks on Breitbart that we've seen, especially since – Look, this, this really started with the Hillary Clinton speech attacking Breitbart News by name after Steve Bannon came on to run the Trump campaign a few months ago. But it's completely intensified since the election of Donald Trump, and in particular since it's clear that Bannon's going to be it, part of the Trump administration as his head of strategy. So there's been a – you know, you talk about how our, our readership has doubled, but the criticisms – have multiplied times 10. I've never seen anything like it. And you and I, uh, and I, I, I think I can say, I mean, you and I are two of the longest writing reporters at Breitbart, um, I think. Am I, I mean, I'm, try, I'm trying to think who was there in the old days who's a writer still. And not many, you know what I mean? Not, not many. And so we've been around, I only mentioned that to say, we've been around a long time. I've seen attacks on Breitbart. I've seen attacks on Andrew Breitbart. I've never seen anything like this. And what bothers me about it so much is not one of those reports, not a single solitary one of them, said, well, you know, of course, Breitbart does do some solid work on issues like the Cartel Chronicles or something like that, right? It was all just attack, attack, attack. And what bugs me is there's a lot of people at Breitbart who do solid work. And the guy who's the clown prince of Breitbart right now is Milo, right? Milo's the guy who he's a provocateur. That's what he is. That's what he does. And so when they focus these attacks, you know, it would, it's, it's really, 
unfair because they're taking things that he's saying that are deliberately provocative, just using the headlines, not getting into the point he's making at all, and then pretending that Milo saying feminism is cancer is like the kind of investigative reporting we do, you know, you know, update feminism is cancer. Like that's an actual story we did as opposed to something Milo said to piss people off. And he did it effectively. So it really bothers me that the journalism at Breitbart has been besmirched uh, by these liars in the mainstream press who don't cover issues like you, like you're covering. Do you, I mean, does it bug you? Am I the the only uh, Um, Breitbart employee? I expect it. I mean, it, I expect it, and I, I think that people, you know, generally, and I'll just, I'll just be honest, I think Breitbart, Texas, uh, and, and me, you know, and my team have, have really, you know, stayed away from being attacked, and not because we shy away from fighting, but simply because we tend to focus more on, on uh, issue-driven journalism rather than political journalism, and any time anyone's covering political journalism, they're going to piss off half the people. And that's just the reality, right? Especially if they do it in a, in a manner that's brazen and uh, as Breitbart does. So we, because of that, we largely, um, you know, each vertical I think is reflective of the person running it, right? And uh, in, in my case, the things that I focus on, uh, you know, I come from a, a very a humanitarian activist background. I, I focus on issues. I'm bringing a voice to, to people and, uh, you know, groups who I feel are marginalized. Uh, I, you know, I came to the right, and you know the whole story, and most of your listeners probably do. But so naturally, uh, I came to the right because I began to feel like left-of-center solutions were oftentimes, you know, like centralized solutions to communities' problems were not necessarily the best answer. So I began, I began to look at uh, helping others and feel like more right-of-center, localized control of how people are helped is really a better, uh, a better solution in most cases. So I came to the right through that. So obviously Breitbart, Texas is reflective of, of the people I choose to hire, what I choose to assign. Uh, it's all reflective of, 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 you know, that ultimate drive, which is bringing a voice to people. So we avoid a lot of the attacks. Uh, however, one of the groups of people that we, that, that, that we felt like were being very marginalized was Border Patrol agents. So obviously we, cover, we, cover, we're, we are a voice for the Border Patrol agents of this country, and it's probably one of the loudest ones, uh, definitely the only ones defending them in media and giving their perspectives. Um, so that generates some attacks, obviously. But, uh, you know, I, I find it to be very offensive. I mean, a couple of people made gestures that were very kind, like, you know, Jake Tapper attacked the hell out of Breitbart. Um, but then he tweeted out my, one of my Cartel Chronicles articles that, that were the, 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 I think probably the crown jewel of – any investigative reporting I've ever been a part of, which is we were able to determine that, that um, there was a massacre that had happened in Mexico. It had not received widespread attention, and we were able to find out what happened to those victims and that they were burned in a network of ovens by the Los Zetas cartel at governmental facilities uh, in, the, in the state of Coahuila on the U.S.-Mexico border, on the Texas-Mexico border. And that was uh, you know, something he tweeted out. He took a lot of heat for it. But I appreciated it, and I felt like that was him recognizing that there are parts of Breitbart that, that do good work. Uh, but most, for the most part, no. When it's set on CNN to 8 million viewers or 3 million viewers, no one says, like, hey, Breitbart's just bet 
uh, we disagree with this, but look at the report reporting that the, that Brandon's doing or Ildefonso's doing or Lee is doing or others are doing. No one says that. And it, it, it seems to me it's just, it's actually just them doing what they accuse Breitbart of doing, you know? And, well, and I gave, and, uh, I gave it seems, Tapper, it's a problem, you know? When I saw Jake Tapper do that on Twitter, I gave, I retweeted and I gave Tapper credit for it, even though I was very critical of his coverage on Bannon, as I'm sure you were. I mean, you saw what Jake was doing to Bannon and, uh, it was just absurd. The idea, the, the idea that Steve Bannon is a white nationalist. First off. Right, but, but here's, here's what's, what's weird about it. Cause, and I don't like to do this, but I, I'm going to do it in a little bit, only because it's in, it's in a little bit of defense of him. He really believed it. You know, like that's the thing is there are people out there who, there are people out there who are obviously being disingenuous and dishonest. And then there are people out there who are mistaken and really believe something. And when you look at a consortium of headlines and, and articles, you take out the fact that something that says Jew in the headline was actually written by a Jewish person, and it would actually be kind of anti-Semitic of me to tell a Jewish, an older Jewish man, hey, how you address your community, that is incorrect. You were incorrectly addressing, so he was allowed to publish his headline, right? David Horowitz we're talking about. Um, when you take out all that stuff and you put things together and they, we- they wove a conspiracy theory that was akin to how the left wove the Pizzagate. I mean, how the right, the far right or somebody, whoever the hell it was, wove, wove the Pizzagate uh, conspiracy theory. So when you're looking at the conspiracy theory, um, it kind of looks like it might be true because they took little bits of truth and mixed it with a bunch of untruths and they just slowly built a narrative, right? So Steve Bannon, who's white and he's an American nationalist, it became a, a white guy who's a nationalist and then it became a white nationalist, you know? And technically, you know, he's not a white nationalist, but he is white and he also is a nationalist. You see what I mean? So they, 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 they spun this narrative and then Bannon had made a comment at one point about being the platform for the alt-right and but I happen to know for a fact that at the time he said it, the alt right did not mean to him what it means now, you know, and uh, what it's being yeah. portrayed as now. And um, and so it, it, it's kind of like if if I said that, you know, if I were in the 50s and I said I'm gay, that meant I'm happy. And then and like if if you go uh, uh, Brandon Darby, who 50 years ago admitted being gay, you know, it's kind of like well, yeah, but it meant something different at the time he said it, right? So, but they didn't know that. So a lot of that stuff with a lot of journalists really toned down after I started defending them. And then we started direct messaging and texting and emailing about it um, and then presented a different side of the story. So uh, I don't support it all. And I'm not defending anyone who attacked Steve Bannon. Uh, Bannon's been a good man to me as he has been for Andrew's company and to Andrew's widow and to Andrew's best friend, Larry, who still uh, runs the company. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I, a lot of these people really did believe it, and it took somebody really specifically calling it out and going, wait a minute, look at this, look at this. And just, I mean, I lost so many Twitter followers just incessantly defending him 10 times a day, calling out every little tweet, every little thing someone said that was untrue, and, and explaining it. Um, and, and I think that that's why a lot of it had toned down. Uh, also, I think it toned down because they failed. They thought they were going to take out Bannon, and they didn't um, from the Trump administration, right? So, uh, you know, I, I look at that, and yeah, of course it's frustrating, Lee, like when you're doing good work and, you know, like the, the person that I work with, my partner on the cartel and the borders, he's from Mexico, he's a U.S. citizen now, but he was born in Mexico, he, um, 
his you know dad was kidnapped by Los Zetas at one point. Uh, this guy has a, 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 a an issue with the cartels and what's going on with his people, and he he is fighting back. And he came to the U.S. to get the the protection of being a U.S. citizen, writing about them from U.S. soil. And we found I'm talking about Ildefonso Ortiz. And so for them to say we're white nationalists, we're hate speech, we're a hate site, when we're really the only ones loving, you know, you can say all you want as a Democrat or left media, like we love people of color, we love low-income Mexicans, we love, well, no, the only ones showing it is Breitbart News. We're the only ones showing that. And, And like it or not, regardless of what you think about Breitbart News, this beautiful project called Cartel Chronicles that we're doing is part of Breitbart News. That that has that was birthed by me, by Ildefonso, and Steve Bannon, and and it wouldn't have been possible without the support of everyone at Breitbart and leadership, and the board, and you know. So when people do that, I find it to be pretty offensive, and I think it's just disingenuous. You know, it's like you have to say, you know, and then you know, I, you have to acknowledge the fact that. The vast majority, I mean, there are headlines on Breitbart I don't like, man. I mean, we publish on average 4,400 articles per month at Breitbart. I can find five to ten that I really don't like, and I can find probably two or three that bother me deeply. But the other 4,390 or 385, I'm really proud of those articles, you know? Like, I'm very proud of that. And, and, um, and so it is, it, is, it is bothersome to me, you know, for sure. Well, and I think it also, you know, this is my point, too, is I don't hold, look, I don't hold Jake Tapper responsible for what Van Jones says. Does that make sense? They're both on CNN. If you want to play right. by those rules, I don't, I don't treat Jake Tapper or a comment that he makes the way I treat Van Jones, and I don't treat Van Jones the way I treat Anderson Cooper. And all I mean by treat is I don't criticize them the same way. In other words, I don't, it's not it's not Jake Tapper's job to answer for what Van Jones says or to answer for what Van Jones did last week or 20 years ago, right? That's not Jake's job. Now, maybe you can criticize the head of CNN for that, right? That's, that right. to me is fair criticism. And so to me, if you, if Breitbart Texas, which you manage, published that article that everyone loves to bring up about the Confederate flag, wave it high, right? That one, whatever. You know the article I'm talking about. Then I, I, I do know the article, and honestly, I, I I wasn't aware. I didn't publish the article, obviously. And if I had to publish it, I should be criticized. I don't like that article. Um, but again, um, out of untold numbers of articles we've published, tens and tens and tens and thousands. Um, that article is not representative of, of, of what I do. It's not representative of the company even, you know. Um, I, I don't think that it is. Uh, I do think, you know, there, like I said, there are things that are published that, you know, you don't see and then you, you realize they were published. You look at them and go, why would someone publish that? But I can do that on any outlet, really. Um, I can do that. I, I, don't, I don't like white nationalism, but I also don't like black nationalism. I don't like racial separatism. And I also don't like racial separatism, you know, like regardless of where it's coming from. And so, so well, was, other outlets have – go ahead. Well, I was just, just going to say, I was watching the film The Last Waltz with the band last night. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Yeah. But it was the band's, you know, the backing band for Bob Dylan, the band, who also did 
Cripple Creek and and uh, the the weight and all these great songs. I'm a I'm a massive and, fan, yeah, of the band, you know. Yeah, right. No, me me too. And I'm watching massive it, and of fan. course, especially that song, uh, the weight. I find that to be a that's a that's a song that's just you know it's one of the if you ask me my top thirty favorite songs of all time, the the weight would be one of them. I think it's a great song. And the version that's in the last waltz is phenomenal because it's got the staple singers. It's got Pop Staples and, and, and Mavis Staples singing on it, and it's phenomenal. It's really good. But here's the point that I'm making. That's a film with a lot of hippies in it, right? Neil Young's in it and, uh, you know, Dylan and all these people, right? And I'm, I'm going yeah. through the film looking, looking for Van Morrison's version of Caravan. And guess what I see in the film? Right in back what? of the band, Confederate Flag. So that film, and right. here's the point that I'm making. When that film came out in the 70s, a con- the Confederate flag was not seen as the symbol of racist hatred. In fact, there's plenty of black musicians in that film, and they weren't like, hell no, we're not going to do that film. Like I said, the Staples singers are in it with the band. Well, I mean, is, is the U.S. flag a, a, a symbol of, of – of, I mean, every nation, every entity, every yeah. group – has has dark periods of history and and obviously you know when it comes to the south i i don't i'm i'm proud to be from the south i'm from texas uh my yeah, family from mississippi and from louisiana and i'm proud to be from the south uh, at the same time uh that that period of of southern history and that aspect of it is not something i'm proud of you know um but yeah. i don't think that the flag is is representative of of uh of of slavery if it is to some people then they shouldn't use the, that flag but it isn't to everyone who dons that flag uh at all you know yeah that was the other thing is what they did on that story is suddenly in the wake of the ame shooting which by the way that dude's about to be found guilty and put to death that's a little prediction i'm just going to make there's no question that he's about to be found guilty what's that yeah i said yeah, dylan roof i mean but uh He's about to he's about to go away, uh, but in the in the wake of that, suddenly the Black Lives Matter crowd started using the Confederate flag, and so now, uh, you know, a year past that, they go back in the Breitbart archives, they find one article that one guy who's not a regular writer. But the other thing about that is, and again, you know this, Andrew Breitbart's big philosophy was more voices not less. And I don't, I don't like that article. I don't agree with that article, but I actually like the fact that I wouldn't have done some of the headlines Milo did. I wouldn't have done. I wouldn't have either. Right. I I wouldn't have either. But I love Milo and I'm glad he's uh, a voice. I'm glad he's, he's doing what he's doing. And I'm even glad that article I don't agree with was up there. And I actually wish the media, the New York Times and CNN, would – when was the last time the New York Times published an article by you, right? Never, yeah, right? Not or, or, any, or any friends of ours, right? We don't know people. The New York Times simply does not – they suppress the views that don't go along with what they believe. And so if the biggest uh, criticism of Breitbart – is that we publish some unpopular views occasionally. 
very rarely, like that article that you and I are sitting here going, we don't agree with. I'm okay. I can live with that because Andrew was a more voices, not less voices guy. Now let's talk about the video that you have coming up. Uh, and you, you talked about this on Twitter the other night, but you have some video that's pretty shocking, right? I have a very shocking video, yeah. Uh, I have a – so I guess I could tell you more about it, right? I have, a, I have a, yeah. a cartel video that depicts the realities and the horrors and the terror that uh, many Mexicans live under in Mexico. And um, it's, a graph, it's, it's probably the most graphic thing I've ever seen. Uh, but it, it accurately depicts the, the terror and the horror that these people live under. And um, it's also not receiving attention, the horror and the terror that they live under. And when that's occurring, the only solution is to put the terror and the horror in the face of other people, uh, particularly U.S. lawmakers. Um, that is all you can do. So um, that is uh, what we're trying to do with the video but because it is so graphic, it poses unique problems and challenges. And then I realized something. I realized that when it comes to freedom of expression and to depicting the horrors, I mean, I, I know that no one wants to see a graphic video, right, uh, except some sick people. But the problem is is some people are living with that graphic horror in their daily lives. And, and so in order to bring attention to them and make sure that their history as oppressed people and if you want to use the left terminology, as oppressed low-income people of color in Mexico, right? Uh, if you want to bring attention to that history and make sure it's documented in, in history, uh, you, have to, you have to make sure it is, in fact, made public and documented in history. And that is something that is very difficult to do. And the reason it's difficult to do is because if you, if you are a website and you publish something that graphic, even if it's the reality, then you – you uh, you know you lose your spots on Google, you lose your advertisers, you lose all kinds of things. So it, it's a very tricky situation. And so as a citizen journalist uh, in Mexico, giving that to us, trying to bring attention to it, uh, they are like, well, what the hell do I do now? Because no one will publish our reality. Um, and and so it's been a very tricky situation to try to figure that out. And the only thing that I've come up with is live leak. You know. Um, that's the only thing. But then if I blog about it and, I, and I'm hosted on some other server, then, then they're going to pull my website for including the video in a post, you know? So it, it, it's, well, kind yeah. of a, it's kind of a problem. Well, and the thing is here, you know, uh, ISIS, I was talking about ISIS back in 2013 after I went to Beirut, and I covered the Syrian war in a fairly early state, and I was talking about ISIS. Now, what happened – Nobody knew who ISIS was here. Nobody was talking about ISIS. When people started talking about ISIS and waking up to ISIS, unfortunately, was when ISIS started beheading people in orange jumpsuits, right? That's just the right. reality, okay? People are busy. Yeah, okay? and when, when people, people saw it and the, con and the controversy over people airing it uh, generated attention, yep. and, and that's what – here's the deal, Lee. I'm just going to level with you, man. Um, I've spent my life fighting for groups of people. And at one point, you know, I worked undercover with the FBI. I busted some bad guys. The, the left establishment turned on me. They just tried to destroy me. They, they did to me what they did to Bannon and what they've done to others. Um, I fought back. I was losing. They wouldn't print my words. 
if I left a comment on an article about me, they would delete my comment and shut down comment. I mean, I couldn't, I could not have a voice. And Andrew Breitbart found me, and he gave me a voice, and he fought for me, and he defended me, and he put me in the situation that I'm in, that led to me being where I am today, where I have a, I have a mortgage, I have a home, I, I can earn a living, I have a child, you know, my child has food in her belly. And, and doesn't know the house is warm when it's cold outside and it's cool when it's warm outside, right? Like we have a comfortable life, and that's because of Andrew. And I would have not had that uh, after I was attacked so badly, dishonestly, had it not been for Andrew. And so here's the deal. I take it very seriously to do for other people exactly what Andrew did for me. And when I find people who are marginalized or being treated wrong or being smeared unfairly, I fight for them, and I fight for them with everything I have. And what I found in the course of my work was I found that there are millions of people in Mexico who live in abject fear and terror of, of being murdered and having their families murdered if they don't cooperate with these Mexican cartels who are, in fact, operating in the U.S. and killing U.S. citizens and, and pumping dope into our community communities. Um, I am so fed up. I set out four years ago, roughly, to, to stop them and to end them, to bring attention to the border and bring attention to them. And I did so on behalf of not only Border Patrol agents in the U.S., but also on behalf of these people in Mexico, two groups who are, are really unfairly treated and smeared or ignored. So I set out to do it. Um, through sheer luck and hard work, we were able to expose 43 photos of the, the migrant crisis uh, in, in the summer of 2014, for some reason, it was a lead on Breitbart. For some reason, it became the lead on HuffPo, and it became the lead on Drudge, and the UK Guardian, and, the, and everyone had to use our photos. The border became a big deal in the minds of everyone at that point. Um, and now the cartels are becoming a big deal in the minds of everyone, but it takes time, and it's taken a lot of work. So I'm going to tell those people what, their stories. When I go to Mexico, I don't know. It's a 50-50 whether those brutal bastards are going to catch me. And, and torture me. I don't know what they're going to do. I have to hope I don't get caught when I go to meet with people. It's very uncomfortable. Most media outlets who go into Mexico, they pay what's called a fixer, and the fixer goes to the cartel and gets permission from the cartel for a fee. That's what National Geographic does. That's what most outlets do. And the fixer gives them protection, provided they don't say certain things or talk to certain people or, you know, and we can't do that because our goal is to end the cartels, right, and to help people fight them. So we can't pay a fixer like other outlets do. We have to go and hope we don't get caught because they want to catch us. So when I go and meet with mothers and fathers and who have lost daughters and they don't know where their daughter's remains were or their daughters were raped and brutally tortured and the video is released, and, you know, you, you go meet with these people and they want justice and they're afraid and they're having the courage to stand up and talk to us, um, you're damn right. I'm going to fight for those people like I would my own family. I, I take that very seriously. I cannot for the life of me understand how U.S. journalists go to bed at night thinking they're a voice for the voiceless and ignore the plight of people in Mexico. To me, that is the crazy. They, they, they have these narratives and occasionally they write a story about the migrants who come to the U.S. and are going to get deported. That's not nothing compared to what the hell is going on in that country. And, and, and for me, for them to ignore that, for them to say the border's safe, oh, the cartels only kill cartel people, that is such crap. It is so untrue. And, and, and so th there's not a snowball's chance in hell that, that I'm not going to tell their story. You know, if I'm going to tell it at Breitbart and as long as Breitbart allows me to.
And not only that, but I'm going to find creative ways. And, and I tell you this right now, Steve Bannon is, is very passionate about this issue, and he's passionate about this issue after hundreds and hundreds of days, if not several years, of me putting five or six you know, articles up a day about this issue. And him, he understands the issue. He understands what needs to be done. He understands uh, everything I feel about these people. And now he's the number two guy in the White House, you know. Um, and so to me, uh, we, are, we will be successful in bringing justice for the families uh, that, that we've met with. We will bring them a voice. And I, I assure you, as much as, as Andrew kept his promise to me, you know, we sat there one day and we were drinking red wine. We were talking and he goes, why, do you, why are you doing this? And I said, well, honestly, Andrew, what I should say is something like, because our country needs it. And, and that's true, too. But the biggest reason I want to fight back is because I have a little girl, and she's an infant, and if one of these crazy bastards on the left kills me and, and I die and, and all my dot little girl has to read about me is what these people have said about me, that, that, that scares the hell out of me. And he said, brother, I'm going to make you whole. I'm going to get your story out there. And he did it. And, and I tell you, I'm going to do that, and Breitbart's going to do that. And my team's going to do that for these people in Mexico. Like, like these cartels will be over. They will end. They, it, it will happen. And the voices of these people, they will be told. And the U.S. journalists who don't cover it for political reasons, which is what I think it is, like, like they're going to be shamed and they're going to get to a place where there will come a day when everyone is covering the cartels and it will become a competition to break news about a cartel because everyone will cover it. We will win this fight for those people. Well, and Brandon, I, think, I really think the video which you've described to me in some gruesome detail a few days ago, I think this could be one of those ISIS-like tipping points where if you're able to get this video out and you're able to get the spotlight on it, I really think this could be one of those tipping points. Brandon Darby joining us. Brandon, I think you know, I, I think Andrew would be very proud of the work that you're doing. And uh, keep, keep up the fight. Thank you, brother. Okay. That's Brandon Darby, everyone. Brandon Darby on the line live from Texas. We have a lot more coming up. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. Remember, the number to call in is 619-924-0786. We'll be taking your calls on the open line later. Coming up next, we're going to be talking about the refugee situation, and in particular how refugee resettlement has affected one small city in Idaho, Twin Falls, Idaho, where I spent several months earlier this year. Let's, before we segue into that, let's talk about another thing that's in the headlines, which is Geert Wilders in the Netherlands, outspoken politician, outspoken against what he sees as the dangerous immigration policies of the Netherlands, tried and convicted of hate speech in the Netherlands. That came in early this morning. He was tried and convicted. Thank God, apparently there's no penalty for this. The details on what he said are interesting. So Geert and his allies in the Netherlands, his fan base there, are concerned about Moroccan immigration, and he asked a crowd, now this is going to shock you, I'm just warning you, if you have language concerns, 
you may this this hates there's a hate speech warning. I should get a I should get a stinger for that. This is a hate speech warning. Ready? You're going to hear terms, hateful terms, hateful, hateful terms. So he asked the crowd, do you want more immigration or less? And the crowd shouted less. And that's what he was tried and convicted for. That's the hate speech. The word is less. I know. It's offensive. I know. I've hurt your virgin ears. But that's what he was convicted of. And that's just an example of how far things have gone in the craze over refugee resettlement. And that brings us up to our next guest. Joining us now is Hilbert Nelson. He is the leader of a group called We the People Magic Valley, based in Twin Falls, Idaho. Hilbert, how are you doing today? Hi, Lee. Good to join you. Yeah, great doing to good. have you uh, on the sh- on the show. Hilbert is one of the uh, great people I met up in Twin Falls when I was covering the story before. And uh, Hilbert's got a very interesting background. What, just tell people a little about yourself, what you do for a living, and that sort of thing. Uh, I'm a mental health therapist. I work with adults and couples uh, full-time. And I've been doing that for a number of years. I have a licensed clinical social worker degree, and I enjoy that an awful lot. And I have a family here, been here since 1992 with my wife and uh, three grandkids and our son and his wife. And Twin Falls has been our home for a long time. We came from Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, I originally was in advertising at that time, made the switch over. So we've enjoyed that. Uh, living here in Twin Falls a lot, and uh, uh, it's our home. So, yeah. Well, you sure? Just from that bio, you sound like a racist hater, Hilbert. Just from that, I, I think know. people I, can hear. I, I think people uh, can hear the hate pouring out of you. <laughs> can you? So, can you hear the hate coming out of us? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, th- so this is, of course, I'm mocking what's been going on because you guys, we're going to get into the story here for people who may not be familiar with what's been going up in Twin Falls. But uh, one of the most interesting aspects to me is how the people who've been concerned about the issue up there have been smeared as racist haters, and not just smeared by the local paper, the Times News, or the local TV stations, which has happened, correct? And not just by the town council. You guys have been smeared by all of those, right? I mean, that's... That's accurate. But more recently, you've also been smeared by the Washington Post and the New York Times and, mm. and all these other publications. So let's talk about what's, what's going on in Twin Falls. What's, what's the situation with the refugees and why has it become controversial? Yeah. Okay. If you, uh, for your listeners who want to get a little bit of context about all the things that have led up to now, go to our website, uh, we the people MV and MV stands for magicvalley.com. And we created a website uh, to collecting all the articles uh, of all the events since the rape by the three migrant boys in June, and then collected all that information right up until uh, November when uh, Chico Harlan from the Washington Post came to one of our We the People Magic Valley meetings and did his hit piece. Um, and we also on there, you'll find the rebuttal by Vicki Davis, a researcher who made a presentation on globalism uh, to our meeting. And so you can get a real flavor of what's happened. You can see all of the articles from that right-wing 
a Muslim-hating uh, website called Breitbart.com, especially that That's reporter, right. Lee Stranahan. It's just awful hit pieces there, all of it fake news, of course. <laughs> so it's all in there. Uh, things have kind of died down here a bit in, in November. We had an awful lot of uh, momentum and um, um, fervor, you might want to call firestorm fervor, during the month of August. Not only did Breitbart and many others bring this story, which was being poo-pooed and called um, untrue by uh, Grant Loebs, the prosecuting attorney regarding uh, Jayla's rape, which was uh, and also being being urinated on, um, and that story was uh, dismissed as untrue and probably racist-based. And Breitbart and also We the People, Magic Valley, uh, City Council Watchdogs brought that story to uh, to light and forced that story to become national and did a wonderful job with that. And that happened. Um, that's that story broke while we were planning bringing Brigitte Gabriel from Act for America to Twin Falls in August. So things really kind of came to a big head during the month of August. Um, and, so and we had, had a lot of momentum so in our to, groups. And so just to put it in context, a lot of people first heard about the uh, the assault that had happened in June, the one you, you talked about, where three refugee boys yep. attacked this uh, mm-hmm. young girl and mm-hmm. uh, five-year-old. And People heard about that, and there was some initial misreporting on some of the details. They said they were Syrian refugees. They weren't. They were from other countries. But that, that's okay. what the media is focused on. It's a really irrelevant detail in the scheme of this. They were, part of the ref, they were refugees. That's, that's a fact. No one's disputed that. Uh, right. And they tried to make it out because there was one detail wrong in the initial reporting. Uh, and you, you, had mayor, yeah. you had the former mayor. Yeah, you had the former mayor of Twin Falls, the former mayor of, of Twin Falls, uh, Stephen Lanting, in his Facebook page, you know, did a rant about how it was all just false accusations, and then later, of course, had to recant that. But yes, just to your point, that's exactly how that that initially started. So, uh, Brigitte Gabriel comes to Twin Falls, and we, the people, Magic Valley, by, by the way put this in bigger context is just a, a coalition of the John Burt society and uh, act for America and amend to Idaho. And we all got together way back in April to uh, say, how can we work together as a, a coordinated coalition of Liberty minded uh, or people in twin falls? Of course we are racist and we're haters. If you want to hear what uh, the Washington post has to say about us, but, out of that came uh, a lot of momentum. Uh, since then, though, it's been pretty quiet here with the media. Um, the latest, of course, was the uh, Washington Post coming here, and you can see both that article and Vicki Davis's rebuttal on our website under local news. Now, now, part of the controversy has been about the Chobani Yogurt Factory, which Chobani yeah. is a company owned by Hamdi Yulikaya, He's a Turkish businessman who's been in the United States, not a U.S. citizen as far as I can tell, which is just right. uh, pointing that out. And he opened the world's right. largest yogurt factory in Chobani. And you mentioned Greg Lanting, who, who'd attacked, literally attacked the family when I was out there, attacked mm-hmm. the family on Facebook of the rape victim. 
and told things that were not true about them. He later apologized after I reported it, but and got a lot of national attention on on what he'd done. But he was the guy. He said he likes cutting ribbons, right? So they so Twin Falls, which is a city of about fifty thousand people, right? It's about about that, a little under. I think. It's about about forty five, um, fifty thousand people and growing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So about. 50,000 people, really a lovely community in a lot of ways, and uh, just um, right by the Snake River Canyon there, beautiful country, great people. And I, I like to have you on as well because the way they try to paint, you know, if you read that Washington Post article, look, I know, you know, Vicky, you know, Vicky's an educated woman. You're an educated person. This is not a, a, a mob of racist yokels. I don't know how else to put it, but – the people on the coast, that's the way they want to portray the people asking questions about the refugee program. And part of what's going on and part of what I reported when I was up there is that Hamdi Yulakaya, who is the CEO of Chobani, it's a privately held company, he's a major stakeholder, has been a major advocate for refugees and has about a 30% refugee workforce. And Michael Patrick Leahy was on the other day, and we talked about this a little bit on the show. But but Hamdi Okai has been a major advocate. And what, what I when I looked into it, it was obvious to me that the town council of Sioux Falls, of the Twin Falls, forgive me, that the town council of Twin Falls did not want to cross Hamdi Okai. They wanted to, uh, mm-hmm. I'll just say, suck up to him. I won't even say cross. They want to do anything. You know, there's video out there of Butch Otter, who's the Republican governor uh, of Idaho, literally hugging Hamdi Yulikaya. So this is Republicans and Democrats who stuck up for Yulikaya. And I think part of it is they don't want to get the ire of a major business owner. And I actually had politicians, I won't name them, but I had politicians say to me, that they question the refugee program up there, but they don't want to say anything about Yulikaya or Chobani at all. And and it's it's such a deal, just to paint the picture for people. If you go to Butch Otter's office or if you go to legislators' offices, they literally have Chobani yogurt in the fridge to give you while you're waiting, right? So this is that's, – that's, that's not an exaggeration. Um, right next to Cliff so, Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. But Cliff is another company, and Cliff also right. hires refugees. So, what specifically, Hilbert? Let's drill down. What is your specific yeah. concern about refugees, about the refugee resettlement program, yeah. as it's played out in Twin Falls? Yeah. Well, you touched on a couple of it, and if we take a bigger picture, and we think of the refugees as just a, with the refugees' concern with not being vetted with uh, the violence problem that's associated with Sharia law that they do bring here to our country. Um, it's, it's this one. It's that it's part of a, uh, it's a symptomatic of a more of a globalization problem of rural America, which is transforming rural America. I think I mean, you and I had this discussion when you were here was if you look at Chobani and like you said, the sweetheart deals that, that he has got with, Twin Falls and Idaho and the governor and the legislature. That's one piece of the globalization puzzle. Then the other symbiotic unit is the CSI Refugee Center 
before. It's been here for 30 years, and there's never been a problem. When I came here in 92, never a problem. It's only recently as the United Nations policy has shifted and the types of populations that are coming here with the FBI publicly admitting we can't vet, we can't secure the nation. So you've got 9-11, you've got terrorist attacks, and you have refugees still coming in unvetted with tuberculosis and everything else. And then you've got the local oligarchy saying everything's fine. And with that local oligarchy, you've got the the Times News that's very pro-refugee. You've got KMBT, which basically most of its reporting is soft news that makes a good platform for advertisers. Okay, no problem there. We get that. But no one's really reporting about the symbiotic relationship there. Then you've got the minor players of the landlords who are making, someone's making money housing refugees in um, apartment units that I have seen the pictures of in my local uh, Magic, We the People Magic Valley meetings of substandard housing conditions. And we, those landlords, someone's making money on that. The other thing that's going on is the subsidization of the refugee wages to the dairy industry. That's another reason why we have the refugees here and why Jobani's here. We're a huge dairy industry. So now you've got subsidized wages. You've got subsidized housing. You've got refugees here that lose their Medicaid benefits six months after they've been here, whether they have a job or not. Refugees coming into my church who have lots of complaints with the CSI Refugee Center of not adequately providing English classes, not properly teaching them how to use, um, how to live in modern America. And you're talking about people who are coming from countries where they don't have running water, flushing toilets. Many do not even speak or don't write their own language and are now required to learn English. Lots of problems, lots of deficits in the refugee center. So you've got all this symbiotic thing going on and you've got the transformation of a rural America. So you also have wages that um, the, let me back up, you also have jobs that if the refugees weren't here, then the local taxpayers, maybe their son or daughter who's still going to high school looking for a job, they're not going to get that Jobani job or that Cliff Bar job and be able to maintain our, an income and maybe stay here after they're done with college. No, those jobs are going to refugees. So what do you have? You have uh, locals who have to leave our state, city and state because there aren't the jobs for them moving to other parts of the country. So we know a lot of our college-educated um, children who go to the two-year college here don't come back. So a lot of those jobs that are, are Cliff Bar or Giovanni jobs are imported through the visa program too. So this isn't a win-win for our little local community. This is a win-win for the local oligarchy and for the politicians and for the CSI Refugee Center, which, by the way, to this date has not provided a balance sheet showing costs and profit from the CSI Refugee Center, even though that is public information. And if we could find an attorney with courage to file a suit, we could probably find out who is making what. We don't know. So that's what the big picture here. So we get castigated as anti-refugee 
But that's really just symptomatic of what's really going on in a big-picture perspective. Well, you mentioned CSI. Just so people know, that means the College of Southern Idaho, which is a local uh, community college, basically, there in Twin Falls, right in the heart of Twin mm-hmm. Falls. And, and for people to understand it, I mention that because when people think of a community college or when they think of any, any college, you have to understand that it serves multiple purposes in Twin Falls. In other words, it's not just a college. The college is also the center for the, as you mentioned, the refugee center is based there. But also, when you talk about oligarchy, the business center, the, the, the local business center is also based there as well. And so there's a symbiotic relationship. There's a lot going on on that College of Southern Idaho campus. And when you say they should publicly be accounting, I mean, part of the reason you're saying that is because this is not a private institution. This is a public school that has been kind of converted into serving multiple municipal purposes. And as I saw personally when uh, when I was in Twin Falls, the city council, the town council there is very, very protective of Chobani, very protective of Chobani, and very critical, in particular of your group. When we talk about people being called racist and stuff like that, you've heard that directly from the town council, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the folks that our watchdog group, which is we have teams of, of different kinds of teams in We the People Magic Val, we have the media, and we have other groups that are doing things with developing legislation that we could talk about. And also the Twin Falls City Council Watchdog Group that goes down there faithfully every Monday when they have their public meetings and holds them accountable. And they're the ones that brought this to the CSI or to the uh, College of Southern, excuse me, Twin Falls City Council about this story. And they just flatly denied having knowing anything about it. So, yes, that's what we we do. And that's what that council is about. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, and it's not just support. It's not just support from the city council. Let me, you know, because you mentioned there are people in town who'd love to get a job at Chobani, and this could be part of the reason why. In a lot of ways, Chobani uh, certainly bills themselves as a great employer. Here's a comment about uh, about them. Uh, this is on Twitter. Great move by Chobani. It's a it's a newspaper article that says uh, Chobani gives parents leave. Uh, as issue escalates in U.S. election. This came out a few months ago. And here's a tweet by somebody. Mm-hmm. Great move by Chobani. Every parent deserves access to paid family leave. Now, I mention that because the person who made that tweet is a young woman you may have heard of. Her name's Hillary Clinton. And she, she tweeted that out mm-hmm. while she was running for president of the United States. And so when we talk about these connections that Chobani has, one of them is to Clinton, Inc. One of them is to not just Hillary Clinton, who has tweeted several times about Chobani, but it's also Bill Clinton and the Clinton Global Initiative, where Hamdi Ulakai has been a featured speaker on stage with Bill Clinton for an hour, right? And mm-hmm. Chobani's, Chobani's owner, Hamdi Ulakai, was called into the White House when they were pushing for comprehensive immigration reform. He was personally brought into the White House was a spokesman with people like Steve Case from AOL, Hamza Yulikaya, who's, again, not a U.S. citizen, was 
promoting a change in U.S. policy on immigration. Not just that, but he's also tightly connected with Chuck Schumer, who's about to be the next Senate majority uh, minority. Forgive me. I forgive me. I had a nightmare there, Hilbert, for one second that the Democrats were trying. <laughs> forgive me. Just a brief, a brief uh, flash of of a nightmare. Yeah, take, no, he's a, take about a couple to be of deep breaths. I, I have to hang on. It's good you're a therapist, so you'll help me through this. Yeah, this is uh, a therapeutic. Uh, we're having a therapeutic moment right now on on air. Here we go. That's right. So, so Chuck Schumer, who's the Senate Minority Leader, there we go. Senate Minority Leader is also a major ally of Chobani and of Hamdi Ulukaya, and in fact helped Chobani get a major lucrative federal deal where Chobani yogurt, which is now According to a law that Chuck Schumer introduced, Chobani yogurt is now considered a protein and can be part of the school lunch program. And uh, because everyone knows the kids love moldy yogurt. That's the thing. Can't be stressed enough. School children say, you know what, I want yogurt made with mold cultures. They, they, they scream for it. I can't, even get, yeah. look, I'm just, I'm just, I can't even get my kids to look at blue cheese. That's literally true. And so, so they decided to make Chobani, and that's a big deal. That's a big deal. That's federal money going to Chobani. That was personally ushered through by Chuck Schumer. So I think one of the things that I noticed when I was in Twin Falls is your group, which is uh, – and, and I complimented on you, you guys on it when I was there. I think you guys are a great example of how local citizens can organize – and make a difference. I came into the story, I would consider it late. The assault happened in June. You guys have been talking about the refugee issue for a while. I didn't get into the story until, uh, I want to say September or October, I forget. September? I think it was September. Uh, and, you came uh, in September. Weren't you, yeah, weren't you there with, uh, were you there when Chief Gabriel came in August? Or was it I after? Was, I came, no, no, I came right before Brigitte Gabriel spoke. I, yeah, like she came like, and spoke like, August fourth. The, the okay, so I was there because I was there a long time. So I was yeah, you I were. was there a long time. <laughs> yeah, so I was, you were. I was yeah. there there in August and September, and uh, no, and I really <laughs> love Twin Falls and I love the people. But part of the reason I love it is people like Hilbert and the other people I can name them: Vicky and Terry and all the other and Heather and 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 mm-hmm. Tully and her kids, Jesse and everybody else. The people. Uh, the people at Twin Falls are great, and you guys have done, in particular, uh, a phenomenal job on a local level of staying organized. As you say, you have people who show up to that city council meeting every single week. They have one every week, yeah. and you have people there yeah. monitoring it. Uh, but I don't think you guys – and tell me if I'm wrong in this. I don't think you guys knew the hurricane that you were stepping into – when you got into this issue, you've got the most powerful people in the world, the Clintons, Chuck Schumer, uh, on the other side of this issue. And I think that that's why the big media has focused on you guys. Does that make sense? In other words, I think there's, there's a pretty clear connection to major power here. Yeah, definitely. And uh, when you look at uh, the Jabani yogurt with his ties to the Clinton initiative and you know more about the Clinton initiative, it is, the best word I can come up with is globalism. And this is why I had Vicki Davis come and speak to our group because 
what is being hailed as being inclusive, being tolerant, multiculturalism. These are just these are sort of the, the strategies by which the globalists will push this kind of idea, saying that you know refugees coming in here to our country, uh, even with the policy as it is, if you are to criticize this, you're not being inclusive, you're being a hater. So the globalism will, will use these buzzwords, giving you a feel like we're all in this together. But what's really going on is, is what you just mentioned, is there's sweetheart deals. There's this symbiotic relationship between international corporations making deals with politicians who are monetizing their positions as public servants and making special deals that then comes down from on high down into the local level and our local city council sees money being uh, being brought into their community through these globalistic efforts and now you've got Jobani yogurt selling Greek yogurt as a nutritional um, special deal special thing with them but what are they doing they're using refugee labor, the local taxpayers didn't get any sweetheart deals over that, where's our cut, and we are the one who are paying the spillover costs for the extra health care, we're uh, ones, um, paying for the Medicaid bill, we get the bill, and the, national, and the globalists and the politicians get the benefits. None of this is, is presented to us, though, of course, because if you have any criticisms about this, and speak about national security concerns, they just then throw labels at you, and if you report it, you're fake news. That's just how the system We're talking works. To Hil- no, that's right. We're talking to Hilbert Nelson, who's the leader of We the People Magic Valley in Twin Falls, Idaho. We're talking about the re- refugee resettlement issue. If you want to get in on the conversation, the number to call, 619-924-0786. That number again, 619 924 0786. Now, Hilbert, one of the things you touched on that I think is very interesting is you've had you, – you deal with people who are actual refugees. And I think that, interestingly enough, a lot of the media has focused on defending – and I'm talking about the big media, New York Times, Washington Post. They focused on basically defending Hamdi Ulukaya. That's the person who they defend. But they don't talk about the impact on the actual refugees themselves. And one of the things I noticed, we talk about those city council meetings, I, I went to about six of them. I did not see a single refugee at any of those meetings. Not one. Mm-hmm. Didn't see a single refugee at any mm-hmm. of those meetings. And I think and, and part also, of the concern... Did you, did you, did, did you see uh, the leader of, of the Advocates for Refugees there either? There's a, no, no, never uh, saw. a pro-refugee group, and they, they hailed themselves as pro-refugees, and I don't think you saw them there either. No, <laughs> I didn't, and, and I, I, I just point that out because this is not a situation where the refugees – I'll tell you who I did see. I did see some refugees there who were in police uniforms, but those are refugees from about 20 years ago. Does that make sense? In other words, you have mm-hmm. – you, you talked about the difference in the refugee program, the way it's changed in the past few years. You've, you've had refugees. This refugee program is about 40 years old in Twin Falls. But the difference was yeah. the, peop, the people who were coming in, I, we, we 
I think we ate dinner. Uh, I've shopped at a shop by a refugee from, I believe, Vietnam. It was an Asian Asian country. You've got Cambodian or Vietnamese refugees. I don't remember if it was Vietnam Mm -hmm. or Cambodia. Uh, But I've, I've been there, and they assimilated in. The problem with the new group of refugees, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that there's no even attempt at assimilation, which is why when you go out to the local grocery store, you see people in full burkas, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a sign, that's, that's not the e pluribus unum, you know, mindset, right? That's not, that's not what e pluribus unum is about. E pluribus unum is about you come to this country and we're all Americans. And there were plenty of refugee Americans who I saw in Twin Falls, but none of them were from this recent crop. Does that, do you agree with me on that? Yeah. I, I see that, uh, what you're talking about. Uh, and I hear complaints about um, not just the dress, but also mannerisms, uh, intimidation. There's na- a couple of neighborhoods that come to mind where the local residents in that neighborhood with heavy uh, refugee population buying homes are very uncomfortable in their neighborhood now. Um, and I can't go into any more details because it's a developing type of story, something that should be covered. Um, I've heard many complaints from people who volunteer at the refugee center about the, I'll just put it this way, deficits in the acculturation efforts and meeting the social needs of refugees that are ongoing. I mean, imagine coming from a country where you've not seen a flush toilet. you there was never a, an economy in your refugee camp. You stood in line for everything. Your house is made of mud and sticks. And you come and land in Twin Falls, Idaho. That's the extent. And that's not the, the overall across the board way, but that is very often what we would see and what I see from refugees coming from Eritrea to my church. And with with all of that going on and then seeing the, the gaps in service with the refugee center. So, and it's not, it's not unique to the College of Southern Idaho Refugee Center. So, yeah, I see, I see that. I see um, a concern that the acculturation piece, which is the um, hallmark of multiculturalism and being inclusive and, you know, having um, this utopia that was supposed to be erupting all over Europe, with the refugees, and of course we see the opposite of that. This doesn't seem to be happening very well here. So my concern is what is the refugee center not doing for refugees? And right now I think we, the people of Magic Valley, is the only group raising the question about substandard conditions for refugees in these landlord units. And also coming to Jobani, working, and then when they're eligible for full-time benefits are let go. And then a new batch comes in. So I see lots of concerns there regarding that. And our school system has just announced, um, my math is bad, so I'm working off memory, but over 40 languages now coming to the new Twin Falls High School. The impact of that or on our health care or other concerns about the tuberculosis that is coming uh, on on board with refugees into town. is anyone really concerned about the refugees there about that? And if you bring that up, they just castigate you as being racist. So, well, and let's let's talk about the school system yeah. there because that's something I know 
a little something about. I, I've been reading a book actually recently. Uh, Tim Ferriss, who's an author who I like, he did the four-hour work week. He's got a new book called Tips for Titans that's uh, I'm going through, and it's it's interviews he's done and tips he's picked up from a couple of hundred interviews. And one one little mm-hmm. uh, gem that was in there is one of the people he interviewed said he wishes that when people published data, they would have a linked bit of data that kind of contradicts that piece of data. In other words, if you're going to present one side of the story with data, present both sides. Then let people make up their minds. And uh, mm-hmm. I thought that was an interesting suggestion. So let's talk about unemployment and, and the schools in Twin Falls. And you'll see where I'm going with this. In Twin Falls, what's constantly touted by the local politicians is, oh, my goodness, look how low our unemployment is. And that's true. The unemployment rate in Twin Falls is hovering around 3%, maybe a little less, in fact. And that's a very good number. You have very low unemployment in Twin Falls. Now, the other thing, though, so let's, let's look at another bit of data. They use that piece of data to say, oh, look, everything's great with the refugee program. Everything's great with Chobani and Cliff Barr and these other, other businesses. What they don't talk about is this. In Twin Falls, and I confirmed this with the superintendent of schools from Twin Falls, who I interviewed. In Twin Falls, the poverty rate among children who are in the school system has risen 5% in about three years. Now, let's take a look at that. So one way to look at how things are going economically in Twin Falls is the unemployment rate. But let's look at something else. The poverty rate among children is rising. And so why is that? Because that's, it, would, it would seem like if things are going, if, if affluence is on the rise in Twin Falls, that that wouldn't be happening. You wouldn't have more poor kids. And by the way, this is an issue everybody should care about because once you reach a certain level of poverty in a public school, everybody in that school gets free school lunches. In other words, normally, the way it works normally is if you're poor, you'll get free or reduced school lunches. But if you're well-to-do, your kids don't get them. That makes sense. But once you reach a certain threshold, uh, I think it's 60%, but it may be 40 I don't. I'm not looking at my nose, so I forget what it is. But once you reach a certain threshold, everybody gets free school lunches. And so now you've got about a half dozen or more schools in Twin Falls where everybody's getting free school lunches. And by the way, who pays the bills? It's not just Idahoans. It's everybody because that's federal government picks up that money. And if it's happening in Twin Falls, it's happening across the country. That's the point I'm making. It's federal money and it's mm-hmm. happening all over the place. So when, when you see statistics like that, they don't want to, you know, again, this is what the city council does not want to talk about is what's happening with the poverty. So when you talk to the refugees, I'm very curious, what else are they telling you? What's, what are the, what's the voices of the refugees that nobody's talking about in the media? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what else they're, what else they're doing. Um, I can tell you that um, with the schools here, um, I happen to have information from some of the outlying schools about the numbers of, of poor students coming 
into the school system, absolutely dependent on the lunch program, and the teachers uh, are overwhelmed with, this is a side issue, but it points to a common core, is causing a lot of trouble with the, the students and the increased homework. And these are students who have to go after school and work, they, and they have the increased homework issue going on with that. So we have not only just in Twin Falls proper problems with poverty, but you also have it uh, on the outlining areas. And these are the outlining areas where the dairy industry is located, and that's the dairy industry that Giovanni is needing. I mean, there's no, there's one main reason why Giovanni's here, and that is because we're one of the largest uh, dairy production areas in the country. So again, that kind of points to that symbiotic place where you have an international or an international company making a lot of money, and you have um, the politicians um, benefiting as public servants making those deals, but you have the local population who services that company uh, not not getting the benefits from that. So that's a good point that you made, Lee, about the poverty. Right? I've never heard that here by the Times News. I've never seen that reported. I keep hearing exactly what you said about the unemployment rate, how great it is. And the I just researched that that's what the uh, Washington Post also focused on, making it sound no, like there's exactly. really no refugee issue. That, no, that's exactly yeah. right. And the, th the thing I keep calling for here mm -hmm. is let's just present both sides, right? In other words, if, mm -hmm. if the city council wants to make the case that Chobani has brought benefits to Twin Falls, I'm open to that argument. Does that make sense? In other words, uh, mm -hmm. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to come in and say no. It's all downsides. There's no possible upside to Chobani being part of, part of the community. There's nothing good about it. Right. I, I I don't take that view. I'm pro business, yeah. and uh, I believe that there are some upsides, mm -hmm. but I also believe that there's some downsides. And I think if you present both sides, mm -hmm. you let people make up their mind, and they go mm -hmm. on balance. Is this good or bad? I don't know. Are there things that we can tweak? to make it better for everybody? Maybe there are. But it, this is what's so mm -hmm. disturbing to me about the way, and Twin Falls is a perfect example, but it happens all over mm -hmm. the country. They don't want to, the media does not want to present both sides of the issue. They just want to present what right. fits their ideological narrative. And uh, Right. So, and that's the thing that I can, we keep running into is that if you have, if you try to present the downside of, what's going on with Joe Bonnie and Cliff Bars and, and so on, you're suddenly castigated into this label of being anti-refugee, anti, you know, you're being anti-Islam, everything else. And we're saying, no, 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 we're talking about the policy, the way you're doing this business, where it's a, from the UN to the State Department, the Treasury Department, then to, the, then to Butch Otter, and on down to the College of Southern Idaho Refugee Center, we have problems with the system. There, this was never a problem for years. This place has been here for 30-some years. Never a problem. Now it is because of the way you are doing business, and they don't want to talk about that. They just label you, label you, label you, and then they dismiss you, and then and now you're called a hate speeder, you know, hate speecher, and then, then that's how they then shut you down. And that's my beef with the mainstream media. They don't want well, to discuss. Exactly they just want to castigate. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly my concern. I, you know, my concern, look, and, and I will say, 
and then we'll finish up here because I know you could go, and I really appreciate you taking the time today, Hilmer. But uh, I, mm-hmm. I, this extends to what I will call the local elitists. The mayor, Sean Berger, refused, outright refused to do an interview with me. And I gave him every assurance. I said, we can do it live. We can do it where I'll post the entire interview. As a journalist, I'm, I have no interest in taking his words out of context. I have no interest certainly in misquoting him or anything like that. So I'm willing to, to put it out there, and I'll, I'll say it here, too. Sean Berger is an open invitation. Anytime he wants to, I'll interview him under any circumstances he wants to, publicly, privately, recorded, anything. He steadfastly refused to do it, yet I notice in every one of these hit piece articles, they're, Sean's quoted, every one of them. Every one of them. Mm-hmm. He suddenly, he suddenly and, and that to me is just, uh, weak. I don't know how else to put it. You know, if you're a politician, you don't only talk to the people you think will agree with your case. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if someone's going to give you a fair interview, I think you take the interview. But he's been able to get away with it. But anyway, Hilbert, I, look, I really appreciate you taking the time. This is a fascinating story. I'm going to get out there as soon as I can. I think the other thing, we didn't even get right. into it, but I mean, right now, Twin Falls, you've got about three or four inches of snow on the ground, right? <laughs> That's right. Yes, and there's more and there's more developing here. There's there's a whole other story about what's happened to this family of the five year old. That this is another piece that we you could do another an, another story on. Pamela Geller did that from the Geller report. That's also on our website. We caught we got her news item. Again, for folks who want to look at this story a little bit more in the timeline of everything, all the uh, the Breitbart pieces everything's on our website at we the people mv.com you'll see it all there plus all of the events that we've got planned for the upcoming year and we've got we're doing strategy meetings on what we're going to do we're working continuing to work with act for america and the john birch society so we the people magic valley is moving on for 2017 so we'd love to see you uh lee when you come you got to let us know and we'll get together it's a date. Thanks a lot, Hilbert. Uh, great. Thanks for talking to us again. That's Hilbert Nelson from Welcome. We the People Magic Valley talking about the Twin Falls refugee crisis. And, well, this is one of those tech. I'm trying to. That little bit. That's what we call dead air in radio right there. That's me hitting buttons and things not happening. I've been having the weirdest internet problems. Yesterday we had to scuttle the show because of the internet problems I'm having. And today you just got to hear a little bit of silence for a second because I hit a button. It didn't work. So pretend. Hey, let me ask my lovely assistant, Shane. Hey, Shane, could you come over for a sec? Shane? Uh, this is my communication system, by the way, as I yell across the room. Can you, can you set up the – I need blog talk radio over here. For a second, my lovely assistant Shane is coming over too. I call him lovely because he's my son, and it's funny to me to say the word lovely. So, anyway, that was Hilbert Nelson. We have a lot more on this story also coming at Breitbart News, by the way. And I want to point out we're also taking your calls 619 924 0786. That number again, 619 924 0786. Now I'm going to try again to hit a button. Let's see if this works. Here we go. And throw, flip a coin. Will this work or not? Here we go.
Shining the light of truth on liberal America. Hey, that's a bright light. Radio Stranahan. There we go, Lee Stranahan, Radio Stranahan. Hey, listen, before I finish up the show, by the way, I'd love to take your calls. Hey, Shane, I have to talk to my assistant, Shane, here. We don't have a talkback system. It's Shane's in the room, so I say stuff to him. Just keep an eye on in case we get a call here. Because I'm not, I'm not working over here. This is, this is exciting. Really what we're doing here, we're making you smarter about all the technical problems you can run into on Blog Talk Radio. That's the goal. I want to point out that we are looking for advertisers. Today's episode is brought to you by Citizen Journalism School, which is me. Citizen Journalism School, where we teach you how to write, report, get the story right, and make a living doing it. And we're going to be announcing, we just not only have a free course for you that's going to launch very soon, called Build Your Media Empire. You can go to citizenjournalismschool.com, sign up for that right now. But I have a new thing we're going to be announcing this weekend, if you're on the mailing list. So sign up for the darn mailing list. And if you're interested in this, if you're serious about journalism, we're going to be announcing this weekend something called the Citizen Journalism School Mentorship, which is going to be an exclusive way to deal directly with me. No, wait, hold on. Don't hang up. Wait, don't, don't stop right there. <laughs> I'm going to be actually acting as your personal mentor. You'll have personal phone calls with me. You'll have group phone calls every week. You'll have lessons. Specifically, this is a course tailored to answer your questions and take you through the issues, and I don't care what your issues are, whether you're brand new, whether you're trying to get a job in professional journalism, whether you're trying to get your blog or your podcast off the ground. This is a chance to work with me personally in a very small, select group of people, and it's going to be a phenomenal program. And I think it's, it's – and also, by the way, I think I, it's fair to say this. I'm going to say it. I think it's fair. It's the ideal Christmas gift, don't you think? I do, but then I'm the one you'll be giving the money to, so I would think that. But it is. It's going to be the ideal Christmas gift. If you know somebody who's interested in journalism, a young person, and by young person, I don't mean four, because I have a four-year-old, and I'm going to, I love him, but he's a lousy journalist, and also he throws things, and he cries every single day. So if you're four... I'm, I'm not interested, although I do have a good playmate for you, and you two can throw things at each other. But if you have somebody who's a young adult or an adult or an old adult, I think I've covered all the spectrums of adulthood there. If you have someone who's a young adult and is thinking about going to journalism school, for God's sake, stop them. That's all I'll say. I'm not – look, my, my wife and I homeschool our kids, of which we have a lot. We don't just have the four-year-old. By the way, when I've been talking to my lovely assistant, Shane, who I mentioned is my son, he's not the four-year-old. Just so you know, people might be confused on that point, thinking, boy, I don't know, the four-year-old seems to be doing a good job assisting Lee. No, no. Shane's the, I think he's 90. I forget. How old are you? 24? 24. I got it eventually. He was holding up fingers. But we have a lot of kids. We've homeschooled our kids. So I'm, when it comes to education, I'm something of an iconoclast which is another way of saying I hate school. I think that's what a kind of class means. I'm not sure I didn't go to school. So I did. That's a long story. But anyway, Citizen Journalism School, if you know somebody who's thinking of going to journalism school, 
for God's sake, stop them. I owe everything. I am America's finest journalist. And the reason I'm America's finest journalist is honestly because I didn't go to journalism school, which are factories of leftist indoctrination. In fact, I would be in favor. Maybe we can get the Trump presidency to do this. I'll, I have Steve Bannon on speed dial. I'm sure he'll do whatever I say if he answers the phone, which I don't think he will. But I, just because he never does. I can text him, but that's about it. But I think if we can get the Trump administration to rename journalism schools factories of leftist indoctrination, just that one little change, that way if your kids come home, your son or your daughter or your gender-identifying question mark, whatever you have, I'm not judging, if your son or your daughter or your question mark come home and say, mom, dad, question mark, whoever you are, I'm not judging you either. If they say, look, I want to go to a factory of leftist indoctrination, then you can decide whether that's putting your life savings down on. Does that make sense? But I think a lot of people put their life savings down like, oh, my kid's going to journalism school. So soon they'll be the next Maury Povich or Geraldo Rivera or whatever journalism person you think of when I say journalism. Maybe my son will be the next Megyn Kelly. You might be thinking that to yourself, sure. Or the question mark, whatever. If they said, hey, I want to go to a leftist factory, even factory, even leftist, I got to get it right. Hey, mom, dad, I'll try to sound a little more breathless. Hey, mom, dad, I'd like to go to a factory of leftist indoctrination. Again, you might not be taking out the bank loan for that, which is what they should do because that's what journalism school is. Anyways, this has all been one long, tangential commercial for Citizen Journalism School, citizenjournalismschool.com. Big announcement. Sign up for the mailing list. I'll tell you all about it. That's coming up this weekend, that announcement, and it's going to be a big deal. In the final few minutes of the show, I'm going to talk a little bit more about fake journalism and take your calls if you have them. You're listening to Radio Strand AM. Bringing the truth to all 50 states. Yeah, even Massachusetts. Radio Strand AM. Only a few minutes left in the show, 619-924-0786. That number again, 619-924-0786. We've had a packed show having both Hilber and uh, Brandon Darby on. If you missed any part of it, the show is also available to listen to at a later time. So if you came in in the middle and you missed Brandon, for instance, you'll want to go catch that. I think it's a, a great interview and you'll want to hear all about it. So let's just talk more about fake news in the last few minutes we have here. I've been talking about it for the past couple of days, including yesterday's complete technical disaster of a show. Yesterday's show is easy to listen to. Plow through the dead air, and you'll eventually get to a little bit of show. Uh, But I've been talking about how I think people need to deal with fake news, and I really think it's a buyer beware situation. I think that stories that are clearly fake should be labeled as fake. And when it comes to those, and I've been saying this for months, if you're on Twitter, and now that we're out of the election season, people can take a breath a little bit more. But if you see a story before you retweet it, before you post it to your Facebook page, before you hire an airplane and drag it in a banner behind the airplane, that's a little extreme. You might consider before you do that what you're doing. But before you even retweet it, because it's so easy to retweet and share things. Make sure the damn story is true. That's all I'm saying. 
make sure it's from a reputable source. And by reputable source, I'm not telling you – if you think I'm going to say, well, CNN's not a reputable source, of course they are. That doesn't mean I believe everything they print, and that doesn't mean everything they say is accurate. And by the way, that's true about Breitbart News and the Huffington Post and every single news source out there. This is the thing I keep harping on. You know, I, I mentioned that book earlier. Tim Ferriss has a new book, Tools for Titans, and you'd think, you'd think I was – they were an advertiser, but they're not. Um, it's just a good book. And one of the things that's interesting in there is a guy who works with Peter Thiel, who's a Trump advisor now. A guy named Eric Weinstein is in there talking about it. He's a mathematician, and he works with Thiel in one of his investment companies. Is that right, Shane? Yeah. That's correct. Shane is correcting me on that. And he talks in there about consensus, and he talks about the dangers of consensus. Hey, Shane, can you pull up that, can you pull up that section there actually for me? This is where, by the way, the four-year-old would be useless on this. When I asked the four-year-old, four-year-old, hang on, I need a new mouth. If when I talked to the four-year-old about pulling up a quote, he would like he'd throw something at me. There's a lot of throwing going on with the four-year-old. With the 24-year-old, not so much. He's got a good thing on consensus there that I'll be quoting for you in just a second. And when he talks about consensus, it immediately resonated with me. Because I think it's one of the biggest problems we have in news. And, and one of the things I found interesting about the stuff he was saying about consensus was he even included climate consensus. He even included that. Climate change, that's an, an issue I want to get into. I don't know a heck of a lot about it, actually. And I'm one of those journalists who, when I don't know something, I admit it, as opposed to just running my mouth. It's a pretty good habit of mine. But here's what he says. Uh, it's a section of the book where he's quoting Eric Weinstein here. And he says, consensus should set off your spidey senses. And he says, somehow, this is Eric Weinstein talking, somehow people have to learn that consensus is a huge problem. And he says, there's no arithmetic consensus because it doesn't require consensus. In other words, math is just true, right? That's, that's, that's a good point. Math is just true. He said, but there is a Washington consensus. There is a climate consensus. In general, consensus is how we bully people into pretending that there's nothing to see. Move along, everyone. He goes on to say, I think that in part, you should learn that people don't naturally come to higher levels of consensus unless something's absolutely clear, in which case consensus isn't present because it's just a fact. I added that, that part about just a fact, that's me. Or there's an implied threat of violence to livelihood or self. And it's that level of bullying. That's the thing that I see. And by the way, that's what, you know, Brandon Darby mentioned this pizza get thing earlier. And it's a big deal to me because they smeared my friend Andrew Breitbart by bringing him to the story. But this goes into exactly what I've been saying about that story. What I've noticed about the Pizzagate people, the people promoting the idea of Pizzagate is that, They bully people. In other words, if you don't go along with their conspiracy theory, they say you're part of the conspiracy theory. Oh, gee, you don't buy the fact that pasta means, I don't know, whatever it means, little girl or little boy or whatever thing they made up about it. Oh, you don't believe that. You must be part of it. Gee, you're spending a lot of time debunking this. You must be part of that. That's bullying, pure and simple. 
And look, we see it on the left and we see it on the right. Calling Trump Hitler is just a way to bully people into not supporting Trump. Oh, really? You like Hitler? By the way, very few people like Hitler. I'm, this is breaking. Breaking news. Polls just in. Hitler Hitler's very unpopular. I don't know if you know about this, but, but he's very popular. There's a Norm MacDonald joke. I'm, I'm going to get it slightly wrong, but he says, the more I learn about this Hitler, the more I don't like him. And um, that's a good summation of the way most people feel about Hitler. So when you go straight to Hitler, which is what they've done with Donald Trump for the past year and a half, 18 months, it's all about the Hitler. That's just a way of bullying people because no one wants to say they like Hitler. And by the way, the people that like Hitler, and there are a few of them, they're, not, they're also not as popular. <laughs> so this is what's going on. And I think that, that, that when I read that quote about consensus, that's the danger I see. The real danger is in consensus. And look, let's face it. Let me leave you with this. We only have a couple minutes left because, boy, if you want to call in, we're gonna, you're going to call in. We're going to say hi, and that's about it. But you still have a chance. 619-924-0786. I'd like to get one caller in. Is that too much to ask? But this dangerous consensus happens on both the left and the right. And the great thing about this election, the thing that's most exciting to me, is that Donald Trump was running not just against the Democrats. Which, by the way, breaking news, Republicans run against Democrats. But he's been running against other Republicans. And i got to say, I've mentioned this before. I don't like the criticism I see coming out of people, the knee-jerk criticism that I see coming out of every single cabinet appointment he makes. I understand it from the left. These are the people who we just established. They think Donald Trump is Hitler. Therefore, if Hitler's appointing someone, they're probably not going to like him. But I'm seeing it from the right, too. And I've seen it. I like Ann Coulter a lot. I like Ann Coulter a lot. I think she's funny. I think she's smart. And I think she was correct about Trump from the get-go. But she's out there criticizing this new labor appointment. And even Breitbart News, who I work, work for, has criticized this labor appointment. And I've seen it with other things. I saw people freaking out when Mitt Romney was meeting with Trump, which I think was a total win for Trump. Total win for Trump. I don't like it. I think people need to chill out a little bit. Let Donald Trump make appointments. I would be, if the guy who they've appointed for labor was going to be in charge of immigration policy, it would worry me a little bit. But this is a guy... CEO of Hardee's and Carl's Jr. And by the way, I'm not saying this just so I get a free Western bacon cheeseburger because they don't even have them where I live. It's not a Hardee's thing. It's a Carl's Jr. thing. But I digress. This is a guy who's created jobs. This is a guy who's been a businessman. And so whatever he said about immigration in the past, he's heading up the labor department. And I like the idea of a guy who's employed people being in charge of the Labor Department. I'll probably have more to say about this next week, because, by the way, the Labor Department has been the complete bastion of the left and the unions for the past few years. Anyway, that's the show. You guys have a great weekend. I love you. Until next time, I'm Lee Stranahan.